From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, how will the war in Ukraine end? The Russians have failed to install a puppet government there, but the Ukrainians are not going to recover the territory Russia seized in 2014. So some kind of negotiated settlement is necessary, and better sooner than later, for the Ukrainians, for the United States, and for the world. Anatole Levin will comment. He wrote the book, Ukraine and Russia. But first, the end of abortion in 26 states will be deadly for many poor women, especially women of color. Michelle Goodwin will explain in a minute. With the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, abortion access for tens of millions of women and girls may soon be a matter of the past in the 26 states that are certain or likely to ban abortion now. For women of means in those states who can travel and pay for childcare, the loss of Roe will be disruptive. But for many poor women, particularly poor women of color, the loss will be deadly. For comment, we turn to Michelle Goodwin. She's Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine, where she's also founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and its Reproductive Justice Initiative. She's been published in the New York Times, Politico, The Atlantic, and The Nation. And she's host and executive producer of the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. She's also author of the book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Michelle Goodwin, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to join you in conversation. Well, thank you. So let's start by noting that support for abortion has never been higher the percentage of Americans identifying as pro-choice this month was the highest it's been since 1995, while only 30% of Americans identified as pro-life, the lowest since 1995. That's from the Gallup poll. So we are speaking for the great majority of Americans. That's right. The overwhelming majority of Americans support bodily autonomy, privacy, they reject a state enforcing involuntary servitude with one's body. Interestingly enough, our Congress has rejected that in that we have no draft, not even for the protection of our nation at times of war. Will we as a nation surrender young people's bodies, young men's bodies, into involuntary servitude? Um, it will not be legislated. Right. We, we no longer will will do that. So this is a grave irony that we see in this instance, that there are states that are willing to impose involuntary servitude on 10 year old girls, 12 year old girls to carry out their political agendas. Pregnancy and delivery have always been dangerous, especially for black and brown women. The end of Roe will make that worse. Tell us a little about that. That's right. So already the United States is ranked as the deadliest place in all of the industrialized world. We rank 55th overall, not in league with peer nations such as Germany or France, um, Italy, Sweden, wherever. Instead, the United States is in company of 
nations that publicly stone women, that publicly lash them, that uh, are not in company with women being able to drive cars, et cetera. I mean, that's, that's the company that we keep. If we drill down in terms of what this means at the more localized levels, it's grave. In Mississippi, a black woman is 118 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. According to Mississippi's own data, 80% of the cardiac deaths during pregnancy are black women. Black women do not make up 80% of the female population in that state. States like Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi are the deadliest places in all of the industrialized world for a woman to be pregnant. And even the Supreme Court in 2016 made note that a woman is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term in the U.S. than by having an abortion. And now we are turning to an era of widespread criminalization in the anti-abortion states where women and girls who seek abortions through medication or even by traveling out of state may face, will face civil and criminal punishments. Um, and this new post-Roe era will be marked therefore by greater surveillance of pregnant women and the development of laws and practices and policies to justify watching and policing women's bodies. That's absolutely right. Um, this is what's at the forefront. And in fact, these are states that are well-practiced in it. And I think that's an important point for us not to ignore. These are states that are still tethered to seeing the uh, punishment of black and brown women. They've never really lost the taste of it and it's never been where they've had to account for it. Here I'm talking about legacies of slavery and Jim Crow, now the new Jane Crow, that remain with us. There are times in which I think many Americans think that that's all in the past and what they don't account for is to think, well, did Mississippi ever apologize? for what it did to black women. Did Mississippi ever apologize for slavery? Did Mississippi ever apologize for denying black people the right to vote, denying black women equal access to education, to housing, to all of these things that it resisted even in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, all of that. And now these states are well equipped because they practiced it so well how to criminalize and punish. Um, civil fines, criminal penalties are what we'll be seeing in states like Alabama, Mississippi, Texas. We already know with its SB8 law opening the doors for random individuals to sue individuals who aid a person in the termination of a pregnancy. And now we have state lawmakers saying that they want to go not only after those who want an abortion or who help them achieve an abortion, but they also want to make attacks against contraception, um, contraceptive access. So things will get w much worse for pregnant women in those 26 states, but also for doctors and pharmacists and clinic staffers and volunteers and, and friends and family members. That's absolutely right. In fact, just a week ago, I was at the American Constitution Society's annual convention. And joining me as I moderated the plenary panel uh, was a person who works with the team to provide help and support for teenage girls. And she cried, you know, it reached a point in the plenary where she just cried in concern for her staff 
um, staff who care so much about helping vulnerable people, vulnerable girls in Texas, but who now face the threat of criminal sanction if they do what we what Americans otherwise want them to do, which is to help teenage girls who feel trapped, who've been raped, who've been the victims of incest, and who want to have information and who want, um, in many instances, to be able to terminate the pregnancies um, that they have. You're an ACLU leader, chair of the board of the ACLU of Southern California Foundation. Disclosure, I'm a member of that board. And of course, the ACLU has been a leader in the fight for abortion rights. Recently, the organization announced a new campaign with the slogan, End Forced Pregnancy in policies that force people to remain pregnant and give birth instead of making their own decisions about whether to continue a pregnancy or have an abortion. Gia Tolentino wrote a powerful piece in The New Yorker pointing out what all of this really means in the Supreme Court majority ruling. If you are impregnated by another person under any circumstance, you have a legal and moral duty to undergo pregnancy delivery and in all likelihood two decades or more of caregiving, no matter the permanent and potentially devastating consequences for your body, your mind, your family, your ability to put food on the table, your plans for your own life. You have written in the New York Times that this kind of forced pregnancy has a long history in America, going back for the Civil War, when it was a central part of the system of slave labor and that you've written the, how the constitutional amendments that prohibited slavery and guaranteed equal protection also addressed forced pregnancy. Tell us about that history. They did. So that history is, is inscribed in our DNAs of African-Americans in the United States. There was recently a study done between 23andMe and uh, other organizations published in the New York Times that revealed um, something that was stunning for a lot of people, but not for African-Americans. And that is the very high rate and ratio of European ancestry in African-Americans directly tied to white male lineage. And what is revealed in laws, some of the earliest laws in the United States in the 1600s were laws that protected white men against the rape of black women. That specifically inscribed in law that children that were born to enslaved black women by white men would take on the status of their mothers as being property and enslaved. And what this did is it provided a mechanism for capitalism, but it also provided a mechanism for sexual assault, uh, for rapes, and for involuntary reproductive servitude. This was no mystery. It was written about prolifically in newspapers of record. What I cite in my New York Times article is even the New York Times running stories in the 1800s about this, specifically using the language about Black people being bred as animals. This was something that Sojourner Truth famously spoke to. It's something that members of Congress wrote about at the time. The framers of the 13th and 14th Amendments made speeches about this. So there was no mystery about this. And this all makes it all the more stunning when the United States Supreme Court makes claims under the auspices and umbrellas of originalism and textualism that there was nothing original in the Constitution that made reference to reproduction when 
in fact, the 13th Amendment abolished not only slavery, but involuntary servitude. And it was absolutely clear for centuries that the involuntary servitude of black women was not only in the cotton fields, but it was also underneath the weight of white and black men that they were forced to be bed with and then to have children who would later be sold off as property or used as chattel in the fields. So getting back to the present, even after losing constitutional protections for abortion, there's still lots of work to be done around abortion rights. One of the biggest ones has, has been the rule of the, that was in effect for years, a rule by the FDA that required patients seeking the abortion pill uh, to pick up the pill in person at a medical facility. The ACLU litigated for years to abolish this requirement and finally has won a federal lawsuit. And now the FDA has permanently repealed the in-person dispensing requirement for the abortion pill. How important is that? It is a very significant victory. It is a victory that now liberalizes the ability to receive what is safe medication. In fact, in the safest forms of medication that we have. And so let me just underscore that the World Health Organization has compared uh, legal abortion to the safety of a penicillin shot. And I think to put all of this in context, during um, COVID, a period of time in which the Trump administration again tried to politicize um, abortion access, pills that could be used for the termination of pregnancy were singled out. There are 22,000 medications that people could receive by mail. And this was the only one that was singled out that individuals could not receive by mail. And so the ACLU's fight in this regard to make sure that this very important um, healthcare um, can be received without a woman or girl or person who become pregnant, uh, without having to go to a clinic or go to a hospital, uh, is fundamentally important. There's no reason why women should be singled out for this extra legal burden uh, when other medications don't come with that extra legal burden. And there's lots of other work to be done, especially in the upcoming midterms where governors are a key line of defense um, to preserve abortion rights in states that have not prohibited or severely restricted abortion. Uh, and this is true, of course, in the battleground states that already have Republican legislatures like Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, states that will also be crucial, of course, in 2024. So very high among our priorities right now are in Wisconsin, re-elect Tony Evers governor, in Michigan, re-elect Gretchen Whitmer governor, in Pennsylvania, elect Josh Shapiro governor, and in Georgia, elect Stacey Abrams governor. What else is on your political to-do list? Well, what's very important is that we have uh, the immediate in terms of midterm elections, but also this is an opportunity for us to think about 
a true North Star, a third reconstruction where we can imagine beyond just the immediate response to Dobbs or this whole Supreme Court term to think about broader arcs of justice that are demanded for this time. If we can imagine that in 1865 and then following in 1868 and then after that, um, the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments as being the nation's first reconstruction, and it was, and then account for 1964 with the Civil Rights Act and 65 with the Voting Rights Act as our second reconstruction. Well, now I think that we are realizing after an attempted coup against our government uh, and then after a Supreme Court acting in such illegitimate ways against the most vulnerable of Americans, that now is time for thinking about a third reconstruction and what should be a part of that. Well, I think key to that will be the full ratification of the ERA. I don't think we have to wait for a, for a third reconstruction for that, but I think that that can be on the path to it. And I think that centering the lives of women and girls should be fundamental to that, along with remembering what was so important and the business yet undone in terms of racial justice, but also thinking about LGBTQ equality and making sure that that is safeguarded into the future and also disability justice as well. That's just to scratch the surface. And I think that we have to be broad-minded. We have to think about environmental protections uh, and so much more as being part of our third reconstruction and truly moving towards those arcs of justice that are laid out in our constitution. It's time for our third reconstruction. Michelle Goodwin is Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine, author of the book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. She also hosts and produces the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. You can listen on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Michelle. This was great. Thank you so much, John. A pleasure to be with you. How will the war in Ukraine end? Or at least, how can we get to a stable ceasefire in Ukraine? For comment, we turn to Anatole Levin. He wrote the book, Ukraine and Russia. He's a senior fellow of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His writing has appeared in Jacobin, The Financial Times, The American Prospect, and The Nation. Anatole Levin, welcome back. Hello, thank you so much for asking me. Well, the Soviet invasions of Hungary in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 68 ended with the Russians installing new satellite governments there. That seems to have been something like Putin's plan for Ukraine back in February. But of course, the fierce Ukrainian resistance, which surprised all of us, made that impossible. On the other hand, the announced goal of the Ukrainian foreign minister right now, complete and total victory of Ukraine, seems equally impossible. So how will this war end? Well, how do other wars end in the absence of unconditional surrender? Wars end with negotiated ceasefire agreements. And one answer that a lot of people give is that at this point, it's up to the Ukrainian government to decide when to move toward negotiations. It's their country, so it should be their decision. At least that's what a lot of our friends uh, are arguing. What do you think about leaving it up to the Ukrainians? Well, in the end, of course, the Ukrainian government has to agree to any peace settlement if there isn't. 
any peace settlement. That's obvious. But I think there are a number of things that we really need to keep in mind. The first is that, of course, the defeat of Russia's attempt to capture Kiev and create a new satellite state of Ukraine uh, was defeated by Ukrainian courage and grit, uh, but it was also defeated by huge amounts of Western weaponry. And it is Western weaponry and financial aid uh, which is keeping the Ukraine, Ukrainian resistance going. Without that, the Ukrainians would be defeated. Obviously, that makes us parties to this conflict and therefore gives us a right to a say in its solution. The other point there is that, of course, as a result of the war, but also very much as a result of the sanctions that we have imposed, through the war, we are incurring very, very large risks for the world economy in general, for the actual physical survival of tens or even hundreds of millions of people around the world, you know, who are dependent on cheap wheat imports, which of course have been greatly interrupted by the war. And of course, this brings with it also the threat of tremendous instability in various parts of the world. If you look at the genesis of the Syrian civil war in 2011, which had so much to do with bread shortages, but also, of course, really severe risks of economic recession in the West. So, I mean, this too gives us not just the right, but also I would say the responsibility to play a role in trying to bring about a peace settlement. Now, the other point to be made there is that it is very evident from the extremely contradictory messages coming out of the Ukrainian government, and indeed everything we know about the whole Ukrainian peace setup, that the Ukrainian political elites are not united, that President Zelensky's previous offers of a peace settlement were bitterly attacked within Ukraine by more extremist not just forces outside his government, you know, the extreme nationalists, the Azov regiment and so forth, but also figures within his government. So you see, by saying that we must leave this up to the Ukrainians, it's not just that it puts a critical aspect of American foreign policy and American interests, basically hands this over to the Ukrainian government. It's much worse than that, because it actually hands it over to Ukrainian extremists who are in a position to blackmail the Ukrainian government. Now, you know, I don't wish to raise unnecessary hackles on other issues, but I think I think we can say that we've seen this before in the Middle East, right? Yes. You know, yes. where uh, where an extremist minority manages to hijack not just its government policy but American policy as well and actually then goes on to make peace impossible. None of this is to, to say that, you know, we must abandon Ukraine, uh, but we do have a right to, to make concrete proposals. The Ukrainians say they want the return of territories held by Russia since 2014. That is Crimea and those parts of the eastern Donbass. Is that a realistic goal of a, of a peace settlement? Well, here you see is somewhere where the Ukrainian messages have been contradictory because Earlier in, in the Russian invasion, the official proposal from the Ukrainian government, which is it, it's still there on, on the Ukrainian presidential website, proposals of 28th of March, were quite different. It was that Russia must withdraw from all the new territory that it's conquered since the, the beginning of the war on the 24th of February, 
but that the the issues of the lands occupied or supported by Russia since 2014, in other words, Crimea and the Eastern Donbass, should be essentially shelved for future diplomatic negotiation. And that in the meantime, both sides should make a commitment not you know, to take unilateral action, either military or economic, to, to try to force a, a solution of these. That, in my view, was very sensible. It was pointing the way basically to, to what I think was the, the best that you can probably hope for, which is something like the Cyprus situation, where you know, ever since the Turks invaded and set up this separatist Republic of Northern Cyprus in 1974, you've had endless negotiations about reunification of the island. Now, they've never actually led anywhere, um, but equally, there hasn't been a resumption you know, of the war. That was the, the then Ukrainian proposal. Now, since then, from the Ukrainian foreign minister, for example, you've had uh, positions which completely contradict that, which say, no, Ukraine has to reconquer all the land, as you say, which Russia has held since 2014. Now, that means basically taking back Crimea and the Russian naval base of Sevastopol. Now, in a conversation with a Ukrainian diplomat at which I was present, it was pointed out that Russia will fight indefinitely to prevent the loss of Crimea, both because of the, the strategic, but also the emotional importance of Sevastopol, but also because, of course, according to the Russians, this is now Russian sovereign territory. And I mean, by most accounts, a large majority of the population of Crimea wants to be part of Russia. So when this Ukrainian diplomat was told that this means you know, a war lasting 20 years, he, he replied, yes, uh, yes, we will fight for 20 years you know, to, to, to recover this territory. Well, I think the answer to that is fine. If you want to fight for 20 years, by all means, I mean, we can't stop you. Uh, but are we bound to support you for 20 years in order to achieve this goal? If we think that the wider risks and damage to the world from this are not actually worth it, A, and B, that maybe it's not a question of fighting for 20 years, maybe it's a question of fighting for 100 years and still not getting it back. Okay, how about the goal of Russian withdrawal from the territory it has occupied since the start of the invasion, Zelensky's March proposal? How can the Russian government be persuaded to, to agree to that? Doesn't this require offering Russia something that Putin can use to claim that a peace settlement represents some kind of success for Russia? Well, that, that's absolutely correct. And I mean, this is a, a point that I think has been very well made by Henry Kissinger, of course, not necessarily all our favorite statesmen, yes. but, but a man of undoubted, you know, intelligence and, and realism, pragmatism. No, I mean, Putin has to be given some kind of success. And I think, I mean, the answer there is, if you go back to the original Russian demands, now, it's quite true, of course, that there were wider Russian goals that they aimed at but didn't achieve. Now, I mean, if they don't get a peace settlement, then there are wider territorial goals. But it's, you know, in diplomatic negotiation, it's not just advisable, it is actually necessary to start with the official positions of the other side. Now, if you go back to the Russian official positions, they were recognition. Uh, of Russian sovereignty, a treaty of neutrality. Now that Zelensky already offered. And, and he's, as he said, President Zelensky said absolutely openly and absolutely correctly, look, I went to NATO before the war 
and NATO governments. And I said, can you guarantee to me that within five years, you know, we will receive an offer of NATO membership? And they all said, no, 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 sorry, no, can't do that. So he said, look, why not then a treaty of neutrality with suitable guarantees? So, okay, that's the first. On the other issues, leave aside denazification. I think since the Russians captured Mariupol and to a great extent wiped out the Azov regiment, I think the Russians can say that's achieved. Demilitarization, actually you've heard Russians saying, if we have no Western bases in Ukraine and no long range missiles, we can count that as demilitarization. And then that brings us to the territorial issues, which of course are the most difficult ones. Putin wants Ukrainian and Western recognition of Russian sovereignty over Crimea and Ukrainian and Western recognition of the independence of these recently declared separatist republics of, what are they, Donetsk and Luhansk. How is that going to be possible? Well, it seems to me that the, the, the answer here is, as by the way we did in the case of Kosovo, and as we have, you know, in effect in other cases as well, I mean, not necessarily very happy ones, but Southern Sudan, Kashmir, even Northern Ireland viewed from a, a certain Irish perspective, certainly, which is to say to move away from strict legalism, whatever legalism is, towards a search for a pragmatic settlement, but which will also save the face of both sides. Now, it seems to me that here is the critical answer, that if we can give Putin a paper victory over territories that in fact Russia has held since 2014 and Ukraine is very unlikely to get back, then that it seems to me is the only way that we can give Putin enough not to take you know, the large additional territories that Russia has, uh, has conquered. And then you get into the business of you know, how can we give this cover you know, both covered to save the, save the face of the West and, and Ukraine, but also some kind of democratic cover and cover under international law. And here, I have to say, my solution is something which, although we've talked about, we talked about it endlessly in the case of Kosovo, strangely enough, almost nobody in the West ever talks about in the case of Crimea and the Donbass, which is ask the local people, ask them, yes, yes. have another referendum, you know, under United Nations supervision, and ask them. Now, in Crimea, it's relatively straightforward, because Crimea is a unitary area and large majority, it seems, for membership of Russia. Donbass is much more complicated, because Russia recognized the independence of the Donbass on the whole territory of the two regions. But Contrary to every military expectation, Russia has not even conquered the whole territory of the Don. The separatist republics only covered about a third of the territory, partly because Russia did not give, give them full military support. If Russia had given them full military support in 2014, 2015, they would have taken half Ukraine. They didn't. So, you know, Russia was willing to compromise on that then. Then Russia recognizes their independence on the whole territory of those uh, regions, but hasn't actually managed to conquer them. You know, it, it's now almost conquered the whole of uh, Lugansk, not totally. Um, but still, two, three fifths of, of Donetsk is in Ukrainian hands. So it seems to me, I mean, the only way out of this is, is also to have a, a referendum or plebiscite, but on a district by district basis. And then my assumption is that the districts in eastern Donbass, which have, after all, been heavily bombarded by Ukraine 
for the past eight years would vote to stay with Russia. And the areas that Russia has devastated, you know, since February, would, mm-hmm. I, I find it hard to believe, you know, that many people in Severodonetsk or Mariupol are going to vote to go with Russia after what's been done to them, you know, would vote to stay with Ukraine. And then you can basically have a, a pragmatic division of the territory. Now, the other reason why I advocate this is that, look, supposing in an ideal world, Ukraine could reconquer these territories. What then? I mean, a massive repression, you know, the arrest of all the people, presumably, who have sided with Russia uh, in these areas, and possibly ethnic cleansing, which after all is what happened in Kosovo. We gave cover to the ethnic cleansing of the Serbian minority in Kosovo. Now, maybe that was inevitable. The, the point is, you also have to think, how in God's name is Ukraine going to be able to govern these territories, yeah. you know, without <clears throat> the kind of action which will both, you know, frankly, discredit Western support for Ukraine, but also will so utterly infuriate the Russians that it will, you know, basically turn this into a hundred years war. We need a, a, a settlement that will actually end this war. You have argued that the key to Ukraine achieving its goal of integration into Europe is to move towards a what you call a civic nationalism rather than an ethnic nationalism. Explain that. It's very evident that there are two principal strains of Ukrainian nationalism. And one of them is the strain represented by Zelensky, who, of course, as we all know, is Russian-speaking Jew by origin and very much represents this this strain or tradition of Ukrainian nationalism. The other, of course, they overlap. It's not clear. These things are never completely clear cut. But it is very evident that the kind of um, nationalism represented, for example, by the Azov Regiment or Svoboda, I I don't want to get into the question of whether they're neo-Nazis or fascists, but what is absolutely obvious is that they are absolutely down the line ethnic nationalists with a version of Ukrainian nationalism that is mono-ethnic, monocultural, monolinguistic. This is the Ukrainian identity. Other people may be tolerated, but only tolerated. They have no, no recognized role in the Ukrainian state. That, it seems to me, is A, wrong in itself. We shouldn't be supporting this kind of nationalism. But B, B um, it would create tremendous obstacles to something that, that Ukrainians now, for the first time, have a, a genuine chance of, which is joining the European Union. Because in the words of an EU official to me, the last thing we want in Europe is any more Polands and Hungarys. <laughs> okay. In conclusion here, you are arguing that the war in Ukraine right now has become a struggle over very limited amounts of territory. We've seen many conflicts like this in the last many decades, and they have been open to negotiated ceasefires. And difficult as it seems, that has to be the road for Ukraine now. That that is my position precisely. I strongly support it. Western support for Ukrainian independence against the Russian attempt to capture Kiev and install a new Ukrainian government, as you said, like Czechoslovakia or Hungary. I supported Western sanctions against Russia to that end. But that goal of, of maintaining Ukrainian independence has been achieved. The question now becomes, you know, how much we are prepared to do. And it may, in practice, it isn't 
uh, about Crimea or Donetsk or Lugansk, because I don't think the Ukrainians will get this back. We are essentially talking about Mariupol and half a dozen other smaller towns. Now, I'm sorry, but then you do get into the, the, the question of just how much we are prepared to sacrifice and just what risks we're prepared to run for the world for control over these small territories, especially if there is any any chance of a peace agreement, which remember, if Ukraine makes an agreement, which in effect gives up Crimea and uh, the Eastern Donbass, Ukraine has lost nothing since the beginning of the invasion because Russia held those territories already. So we are making essentially a paper concession in return for um, an end to this conflict. And of course, the final thing to say is I talked about the effect on the world economy. We must also keep in mind, of course, the dreadful effects on Ukraine and the fact that as long as the war goes on, Ukraine cannot join the European Union. So there are massive Ukrainian arguments as well in favor of a, a reasonable compromise. Anatole Levin, he wrote about a peace settlement in Ukraine for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Anatole, thanks so much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.